Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. Anyone who wants to be president has to come through New Hampshire first, and no one covers New Hampshire politics like WMUR. I'm WMUR political director Adam Sexton, and we hope you can join us every week for this podcast. And our guest this evening is former Congressman, Democrat Beto O'Rourke. Tonight we'll be getting to know Congressman O'Rourke and where he stands on key issues. At the start of our show, I'll be asking the candidates some questions. And then after a break, we'll have our studio audience ask their questions in a town hall format. But before we begin with that, let's take a quick look at the candidate's biography. Beto O'Rourke was born in El Paso, Texas in 1972 and graduated from Woodbury Forest School in Virginia. He has a bachelor's degree from Columbia University in English literature and was co-captain of the crew team there. When he was in college, he was part of a punk rock band called Foss that toured the U.S. and Canada. After college, O'Rourke worked at a tech startup company in New York before moving back to El Paso to start a tech business of his own. He was elected to the El Paso City Council where he served from 2005 to 2011. O'Rourke then ran for Congress. He was elected as a Democrat to the House from Texas in 2012 and re-elected in 2014 and 2016. While in Congress, he served on the Veterans Affairs, Armed Services, and Homeland Security Committees. He did not run for re-election in 2018, but instead challenged Republican Senator Ted Cruz for his U.S. Senate seat, narrowly losing that election. O'Rourke lives in El Paso, Texas with his wife Amy Sanders and their three children, Ulysses, Molly, and Henry. Congressman O'Rourke, thank you for joining us for Conversation with the Candidate. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. So the tragic mass shooting in your hometown of El Paso really shook things up, not just uh, in the campaign, but also nationally as well. But in the aftermath, you said you wanted to change the way you campaigned to at least emphasize other parts of the country as much as the early voting states. Why is that? Well, what I, what I think we realized in the aftermath of El Paso, where 22 of our fellow human beings lost their lives to someone who legally purchased an AK-47, a weapon designed for war, who was fueled by racism and hatred and intolerance, encouraged by the President of the United States, who repeatedly warned of invasions and called asylum seekers animals and an infestation, is that if we fail to draw the connections, we will fail to avoid the consequences and the costs, not just of President Trump, perhaps the most dangerous man who's ever lived in the White House, but the underlying racism and violence that defines the lives of so many of our fellow Americans. And after that tragedy, I wanted to make sure that I was there for my community, there for the survivors, there for the families who grieve the loss of a loved one, but that I was also there for our country to make sure that we do everything we can to avoid tragedies like these, passing sensible gun legislation, ensuring that we make white supremacist terrorism the number one domestic law enforcement priority, and that we connect the dots in ways that other people are terrified and terrorized in this country every day. And that's why, to your question, the first place that I went to after El Paso was not New Hampshire, was not Iowa, it was to Mississippi, the, the site of the, the largest single state immigration raid in this country's history. Uh, more than 600 people terrorized and terrified because they're working the toughest jobs in America, 
chicken processing plants, posing no harm or risk or violence to our country, but because of the countries from which they came, because of their ethnicity, because of this president's desire to drive us further apart through anger and fear, intimidation and paranoia, they are bearing the brunt of that. And I want to make sure that we call our fellow Americans' attention to that. Stop that injustice and make sure that we live up to the full potential and promise of this country. As noted in the bio, you came very close to winning that Senate seat in 2018. Even after this tragedy, a lot of people were saying, gosh, maybe he should take another look at that Senate race in Texas coming up in 2020. Why did you decide to stick it out in the presidential? I want to be the president that this country needs and is so sorely lacking uh, at this moment. Someone who will heal instead of inflame. Someone who will bring together this divided country instead of tearing us further apart. Someone who doesn't see our differences as disqualifying or dangerous, but as we know in El Paso, fundamental to our strength, to our success, and yes, to our safety and our security. We're one of the safest cities in America, not despite, but because we're a city of immigrants. And I think we need someone who can tell that story in a powerful and compelling way. Bring us together, not just to defeat Donald Trump. And I think we showed in Texas by winning independents and Republicans, as well as energizing Democrats, that we can assemble the coalition to do that. But we need to bring together the entire country. No me importa Republican, Democrat rule or big city, because we've got to confront climate change before it's too late. Make sure that health care is a right. Include everyone in this economy by paying them a living wage and rewriting our immigration laws in our own image. That's a huge agenda and we cannot meet it by half measure or half step or only half the country. It's going to take all of us and I want to be the president who can deliver on that agenda. What do you say to those independents or moderate Republicans and Democrats who feel that the party may be leaning too far to the left? Look, I, I don't know that on any of those issues that, that I just mentioned or that we'll talk about in the town hall today that we can fix them on the political spectrum. It is making sure that you can afford uh, medication for your diabetes, a right or left Republican or Democrat issue. I don't know, but most people that I listen to want universal guaranteed high quality health care. I have yet to meet the Republican or Democrat for that matter who thinks that our current immigration system or current immigration laws are working as intended or are just for the immigrant or just for the American citizen. I haven't yet met someone who wants us to um, do anything other than squarely confront the challenge of climate change because their kids and grandkids will bear the brunt of a warming planet. The floods, the fires, the storms, the disasters that are only going to grow in their severity and in their frequency if we do not take action now. So I want to make sure that we don't define ourselves by party label. Um, I want to make sure that we define ourselves as Americans first before we are anything else. And so I say to them, um, we want to work on this together. And I don't just say that, I go to where they live. Uh, last week we were in Bland County, Virginia, told by the people of Bland County in the southwestern part of the state that this is the first time that a candidate for the presidency has ever shown up in their community. Maybe Democrats had written them off because they were too red, too rural, too Republican, but I showed up because I want to bring them into the solutions. All right, Congressman O'Rourke, these were the easy questions and those New Hampshire voters await. Thank you. Appreciate Coming up it. after the break, we'll bring our studio audience into this conversation. Stay with us. Life's beautiful moments, sunsets, landscapes, wildlife. That's WMUR's U Local Facebook group. Join this growing community and browse the stunning images captured by viewers like you. Or share your own. Get started at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash WMUR9. Go to groups and join U Local. See you there. Jump right into it with our town hall questions from our New Hampshire voters, and we're going to start with Marie Mulroy. Hi, how are you? Welcome to New Hampshire. Thank you for having us. Yes, and I guess my question for you is, what would be your first executive order when you get elected? 
Yeah. Um, there's so many things for us to take on, right? Um, but let's, uh, at a minimum, start with these. Reunite every child who's been separated from their parents at the U.S.-Mexico border. That torture that we're visiting on them, that uncertainty of when or if they'll ever see their parents again. Let's make sure that we do the right thing immediately. I'll also take executive action, given the fact that climate change is happening, imposes the largest existential threat, not just to this country, but to the planet. So we will crack down on methane emissions by executive order. We will stop all oil and gas exploration on federal lands and offshore from the United States. And we'll make sure that we pursue a vigorous plan to get to net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. By 2030, we will be halfway there. And to do that, we'll have to start on day one. So those are a few of the steps that we'll take. Oh, fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Next question comes from Carolyn Morrill. Hi there. Um, Hi. August 31st, I received a telephone message from my son saying, Mom, I'm okay. Active shooting. Mm. I'm safe in lockdown. He is in Odessa. Mm. So obviously, I want to ask you a question about gun control. When everyone else is tightening their laws, mm. Texas has loosened it up, allowing guns at churches and school properties. Mm. Uh, what was the main rationale for Texas to do that? Politics, the NRA, uh, members of the State House and State Senate thinking that their reelection would be assured if they pandered to the gun lobby, completely ignoring the fact that we've now had four mass shootings in just the last two years. Santa Fe High School, Sutherland Springs Church, people shot and killed where they prayed. El Paso, Texas, 22 people killed in a Walmart with an AK-47, a weapon designed for war and combat to kill people as effectively, as efficiently as possible, used against us in our civilian lives. And then, as you just mentioned, in, in Midland, in Odessa, and, and I'm so sorry um, that anyone had to experience either the violence directed against them or the fear and uncertainty right. of being in a lockdown situation. So how do we confront this? We need to pass a really bold agenda that has as its center saving the lives of our fellow Americans. Universal background checks, red flag laws to stop someone who owns a gun if they pose a harm to themselves or someone else. Ending the sale of these AK-47s and AR-15s but we must go further. We must have mandatory licensing, regulation of registry of the guns that we have, and we must also buy back the AR-15s and AK-47s. The question that you ask implies that it's going to be difficult to do in Texas or in the United States. And from listening to the people of Texas and listening to the people of the country on this campaign, I'm not so sure anymore. I, I have listened to them. They've told me they have children as well. They're concerned about their kids' safety. They don't accept that we lose 40,000 of our fellow Americans to gun violence every year, and they want to do something about it. Owners of AR-15 saying, I will gladly give it back or destroy it if it will help to save lives. We just need political leadership that reflects their interests, not that of the NRA. And that's why I not only don't accept help from the NRA, I don't accept a single dime from a single political action committee, corporation, lobbyist, or special interest. It's all people all the time. And I want to make sure that we save the lives of our fellow Americans. And that's what I will do as president. Thank, Thank you. you for asking. Quick follow-up, Congressman. What if there's a citizen who owns an AR-15, obeys the law, practices gun safety? Why are they part of the problem? I'll tell you, we were on uh, one of these March for Our Lives organized by young people in our community. And um, all these great activists and advocates, students 
who are going to make sure that we lead on this issue in the vacuum of leadership from our politicians and elected officials. And I remember coming to the end of that march, I had my eight-year-old son, Henry, on my shoulders. And waiting for us at the end of the march were men who were holding AR-15s and AK-47s. And Henry's like, uh, Dad, what, what's going on here? I thought we were just marching against this. Why is somebody showing up with one of these guns that I'm used to seeing in movies about war? And I said, you know what? Don't pay them any mind. Don't give them any attention. Uh, they're just trying to make a point. That weapon, and this is what I should have told him, um, that is an instrument of intimidation, uh, a tool of terror. It is that kind of weapon that killed people in that Walmart, people who were killed for their ethnicity or their presumed immigration status. It's why people in El Paso, Hispanics all over this country, now tell me they feel like they have a target on their back. As long as there are millions of AK-47s and AR-15s out there, it inspires the kind of fear that those terrorists want us to feel. Though it is a difficult political step for us to take, it is a necessary one if we're gonna reduce that fear, if we're gonna save the lives of our fellow Americans. And so as president, I will take that step and we will buy those weapons back. Next question comes from Kenneth Berlin. Hi, Congressman. Welcome. Thank you, Kenneth. You know, we've heard the term comprehensive immigration reform since 1803. <laughs> and I, what I want to ask you is, what could you do in your first 100 days to get immigration reform issues passed if, God forbid, the Republicans hold hmm. the Senate? And also, what are your thoughts on using executive orders if you can't get anything through in the first 100 days? Yeah, this is, um, touches on some of the questions that, that we've been asked already. How, how do we get sensible gun legislation passed uh, when you have legislators from states like, like Texas or, or New Hampshire or your own governor folks who, who vetoed three very sensible measures passed by your legislature? How, how are we gonna make progress on this stuff? Um, how, how do we come to grips with the fact that we lost seven children in our custody and care at the US-Mexico border, that there are tens of thousands now who've been forced to remain in place in Mexico thanks to our migrant protection protocols, this kind of Orwellian phrase that denies the reality that we're visiting a cruelty and torture on these kids. I think by elevating those children and their families and their stories, that can only help but compel Democrats and Republicans and independents alike to do the right thing, shock the conscience of the country and force us to acknowledge what is being done in our name right now. When the president began a zero tolerance policy last summer and was separating by force children from their parents, uh, deporting their parents back to the country of origin, putting the kids in cages and then sending them to a tent camp city in Tornillo in the Chihuahuan desert just outside of El Paso, more than a thousand of us showed up in the wake of that. We bore witness, we testified back to our fellow Americans, and we put the political pressure on the administration until they changed that policy. A Republican administration, but the Republican administration of Donald Trump, one of the most hateful men towards Hispanics and immigrants that this country has ever seen. In that example, I saw the power of people, and that power will be brought to bear in our administration to rewrite our immigration laws in the image of the people of Manchester, of the people of El Paso, of the people of a country of asylum seekers and immigrants and refugees from the world over and their sons and daughters. And that means legalizing the presence of 10 million who labor in the toughest jobs that you can find in America in the shadows. It means legalizing the presence of dreamers more than a million strong so they never fear deportation back to their home country. And it means addressing issues in Guatemala, in El Salvador, in Honduras, 
like reducing violence there or addressing the historic drought that Guatemala is suffering so that families don't have to make that 2,000 mile journey and come to this country in the first place. In other words, let's remind us who we are at our best and then make sure that we live those values going forward. Republican, independent, Democrat alike, we're Americans first before we're anything else. I agree with you, but I just want to ask you, what could you do in the first 100 days, specifically policy-wise, that could get some of these things done? The legislation that I just described, we will send to Congress within the first 100 days. Um, the executive actions that I was asked about by Maureen earlier, reuniting those families mm -hmm. who've been separated, committing to never detaining another child or family again, instituting a family case management program by executive order within mm -hmm. the, the purview of the president to make sure that at a fraction of the cost, we restore the dignity to those families, make sure that they are okay, and if they are able to stay under our asylum laws in this country, that they reveal their genius here, they contribute to our greatness and our success, and we, not they, are the ultimate beneficiaries. Those are some actions we could take right on day one. Great. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Mr. Berlin. Next question comes from Natalia Orlando. Hi, thank you for being here. I know you touched on it in the answer for the first question, but what would you do to stop climate change? Like what specific actions did you take from it hindering our planet? Yeah, thank you for the, the, the question. Um, we will have enforceable limits on greenhouse gas emissions every single year of our administration and pass them into law so that they are binding for the administrations that follow ours. It is only in that way that we'll get to net zero greenhouse gas emissions by the year 2050, be halfway there by the year 2030. That will require us to free ourselves from a dependence on fossil fuels, oil and gas, and fully embrace renewable energy like wind and solar and invest in the next generation of technologies like battery storage technology to distribute that wind and solar when the wind is not blowing and the sun is not shining, but we still need to be able to electrify our homes. It means putting farmers in the driver's seat and paying them for the environmental services that they want to provide. Planting cover crops year round to make sure that we pull more carbon out of the air, sequester more of it in the soil, use no-till and precision-till farming, regenerative agriculture to store more of that there. Providing an incentive to keep more land in conservation and not cultivate every square inch under ownership as we are incentivized today to do under the current farm bill. In other words, if all of us do all that we can, this country can set the example for the rest of the world, which is necessary if we're gonna convene the other powers of the planet to have them do their part as well. Because even if we were able to flick a switch today and stop emitting any greenhouse gas emissions, that's only 16% of the problem for the planet. And if we're gonna keep ourselves from warming another degree and a half Celsius over pre-industrial revolution levels, we're gonna need every country to do their part. So establishing that moral authority, being the indispensable country again, using every opportunity like last week's G7 summit or our trade deals to leverage our power and our influence to help other countries to meet their commitments, that is how we're going to confront climate change before it is too late. Thank you, I agree. I think it's gonna take the US to lead the way and that's not happening right now. Thank you. Thanks for asking. Thank you, Natalia. Appreciate it. Facebook question coming in from Dan Pelletier. He asks, what makes you qualified to be president of the United States? Great question. <laughs> um, so uh, a little bit of my background. Uh, small business owner, uh, started a technology firm in one of the places you'd least expect to find one in El Paso, Texas. At the time, the third poorest 
urban county in the United States of America. But awash in talent, just looking for an opportunity or a channel through which it can express itself. And so we took that chance on our hometown, took that chance together, and were successful. Served on the El Paso City Council for six years, and every single week of those six years, I held a town hall meeting just like this one. Listened to my constituents, learned from them, reminded myself who it is I'm accountable to at the end of the day, and brought that same philosophy to service uh, when I was in Congress, holding town halls every month for the six years I was there. And though every day I served, I was in a Republican majority, we were able to get things done. Uh, expanding mental health care access for veterans and saving lives in the process. Protecting public lands in an administration that was diminishing the size of our public lands. And investing in both the security and safety of the U.S.-Mexico border, as well as our ability to facilitate trade and travel and improve our quality of life. We did that by seeing beyond our differences of party affiliation and putting this country first. And then lastly, last year when we ran for Senate in those 254 counties of Texas, we wrote no one off regardless of how red their county was. And we visited places that voted for Donald Trump 96% in 2016. But we did so because they're every bit as deserving of our attention, of our respect, of being heard, of being listened to, of being served. And the only way I can do that is if I show up and listen to them first. We also showed up to the bluest places in Texas to make sure that they were not taken for granted, that their stories were included in our campaign. And at the end of the day, we won more votes than any Democrat had in the history of Texas. We won independence, importantly, for the first time in decades. And almost half a million Republicans, like my mom, voted for me, not despite, <laughs> but because of the proud progressive agenda that we brought to their communities and because we included them. That's what it's going to take, a movement of Americans, regardless of the differences, to defeat Donald Trump. And that's what it's going to take, Dan, to your question via Facebook, to make sure that we bring this deeply divided country together again in the face of historic threats that we've never seen before and in the ability to pursue an ambitious agenda that will distinguish and define this country forever after. Christy St. Laurent, our next question. All right. Hi. You kind of touched on a lot of what I was going to ask, but I want to drill down a little bit. Sure. You served in the House you know how things work and don't work. How do you see beyond executive order getting your grand ideas through? Um, do you see that, do you see yourself going to the floor of the House or the Senate? Do you anticipate using a strong cabinet? Do you anticipate starting the ball with executive orders? How is it you see your plans coming to fruition? Yeah, great question. Um, I think it's clear that politics as usual is not working for this country. And when we fail to make progress on any of the issues that we just talked about from climate to healthcare to immigration to the economy, then we give fertile ground to the kind of demagogues like Donald Trump who will use our justified anger and frustration but turn it against the most defenseless and vulnerable as he has done. So it's gonna have to take a different kind of politics. Uh, I will begin with this campaign by making sure that we're not just looking at the White House, but looking to build a majority in the United States Senate. In that historic Texas run, we helped to turn two congressional districts from red to blue, thereby helping to flip the House of Representatives. We helped to elect 17 African-American women to judicial positions in Harris County, home to Houston, Texas, the most diverse city in the country, thereby changing the face, literally, of criminal justice. 
So let's do that across the country. Let's help candidates at, at every level of the ballot, especially in those federal races that will determine the majorities with whom we can work. But if, for whatever reason, we are unsuccessful in changing the composition of the U.S. Senate, of replacing Mitch McConnell, then let's first appeal to them directly. And you mentioned going to the Capitol, and I will do that. In fact, I believe there is an office in the United States Capitol reserved for the President of the United States that I don't think has ever been used. Let's start using it. Let's keep office hours uh, and allow any Republican or Democrat or Independent to come in and share with us what's on their mind. See if we can't find the common ground to pursue the common good for this country. And then failing that, let's make sure that we go to their home districts and talk about these issues. And in fact, listen to people on these issues because I think the consensus the political will, the public sentiment is there right now on climate change, on guns, on health care. It's just not fully reflected in those who hold power. So if those who hold power won't do the right thing, let's go around them to the people and put them in power. Thank you, Thank you very We've much. We've got about 90 seconds left. This is a tough question, but I've got to ask you. You're coming back here, and it's clear. I've watched you for nine months now. There's a righteous anger, and few would begrudge you that, given what happened in your hometown. How do you avoid letting that consume you? Uh, you know, you, you either give up in the face of the kind of terror that we saw in El Paso, where, where 22 people were killed in a city that loses 18 people in a given year. Um, you're either consumed by, by the suffering and, and the tragedy of it. You either accept it as uh, an act of God or a future or a fate, or you stand up and do something about it. And, and I feel so compelled to do that right now, especially given where this country is and what we just saw in El Paso, especially given the fact that the judgment I fear most of all is that of my children and, and your children. And they are counting on us right now to do the right thing. That, that power is still within our grasp. But if we wait more than 10 years, we've lost it on climate. If we wait another day, we've lost it on gun violence. If we wait to confront the endemic racism, the white supremacist terrorism that is the number one domestic law enforcement threat in this country, then that's on all of us because we can take no solace or comfort in blaming it on the president or on a given political party. In government of, by, and for the people, the responsibility rests on all of us. And I take that responsibility very seriously. We're going to do 30 minutes commercial free and we're going to start with Mark Boyd. Thank you. Thank you for taking my question. Thanks, Mark. If elected president, what is the first thing you would do to lower drug prices for us? I'll make sure that Medicare uses the purchasing power, um, its leverage to bring down prices for not just Medicare beneficiaries, but for every American who relies on prescription medications to be healthier, to be well, or even to stay alive. It's almost inconceivable that 97 years after insulin was invented, uh, we have our fellow Americans in the wealthiest country on the face of the planet dying of diabetes. Uh, we have Americans dying of the flu, dying of curable cancers. It's unconscionable, it's immoral, and there's absolutely no reason for it. You and I as taxpayers pay for those medications and cures in the initial research and development, the clinical trials, um, the purchases we make for not just Medicare beneficiaries, but Medicaid and TRICARE and VA as well. So day one, we bring those prices down. Day one, we allow you to purchase from Canada or other uh, uh, first world countries who have very high standards for the medications that they sell, if you can get it cheaper there. 
And day one, we begin work to ensure that we have universal, guaranteed, high-quality care for all Americans, including no copay for prescription medications. Now, that's a bill that Congress would have to pass, but we'll get started on it day one. Those other steps we can take by executive action, and that will make sure that health care is more affordable, prescription prices are no longer the highest on the planet, and our fellow Americans are healthier than they were before. Thank you. Thank you very Thanks, much. Mark. Next Appreciate question it. comes in from Leonard Morrill. Welcome to New Hampshire. Thank you. In 2016, the DNC appeared to dictate who the Democratic candidate was going to be by using superdelegates. Do you think that they are doing the same thing again by making it so hard to get on the debate stage? I thought you were going to ask me about superdelegates in, in the wind <laughs> I was like, how am I going to thread this one? Uh, um, look, I, I, uh, I, I'll tell you, um, we have the best possible problem that we could have as a party, as a country, and as a democracy. All these amazing candidates who represent such different parts of the country, bring different skill sets to bear, different biographies and life experiences, that's a great thing. And, and our party, our country is big enough to have this competition of ideas and vision and, and experience. And then we trust you and, and you and New Hampshire take this responsibility very seriously um, to show the discernment and judgment to vet us and make sure that we select the best person to represent our party as a nominee and to lead our country as president. So I'd love to see the, the debate stage more, not less inclusive. Um, there's plenty of time before the first primary here, before the first caucus in Iowa to ask the questions that are most important, to travel the country and, and meet everyone. And so um, if, if we're a democracy, let's act like it. Um, and so you'll see me uh, trying to do that in, in my travels, in uh, my appearance at the debate in September, the October debate we qualified, and also to advocate for other candidates to have the chance to make their pitch and appeal to you directly. And then let the best woman or man win. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Leonard. Another social media question coming in here, this one from Joseph Hazelwood. He asks, will you support women registering for the draft like men? Yes, uh, I will. Um, and I believe I, I voted to do just that as a member of the House Armed Services Committee. Um, testament not just to the equal treatment under law, to which I hope we all aspire, but testament also to the extraordinary number of women who are now serving right now, who volunteered to put their lives on the line for this country, to perhaps pay the ultimate price for the rest of us. Fewer than 1% of America has served since the wars of 9-11. I believe the fastest growing group of volunteers to the United States military are women. It's the fastest growing veterans population to whom we have a responsibility to, to get mental health care, to get a post 9-11 GI bill that works, to get housing so that no veteran who served is homeless in this country. So the answer is yes, but I think that's also a reflection of the pride that we feel in the women who have already served. You've worked a lot on the veterans health care issue, particularly mental health. Does it need to be a separate standalone number for that suicide hotline? What's the way we get to yeah. a, a lower number or zero? veteran suicides daily? The, the conservative estimate by the VA is 20 veterans a day, every single day, take their lives in this country. Uh, another number that we've heard is 22, but many veterans service organizations tell me that the number is actually much higher. Uh, the majority of those who are taking their own lives have been unable, or for whatever reason, were unwilling to go to a VA. Now that may be that we have long lines in some parts of the country to see a psychiatrist or psychologist for the post-traumatic stress disorder that you may have brought back with you from Afghanistan yesterday or from Vietnam 50 years ago. And care delayed has become care denied, 
and has led to some really tragic outcomes. There are 40,000 unfilled clinical positions at the VA today. So uh, priority number one is fill those positions. If we have to pay more, if we have to have recruitment and retention bonuses to do that, then by all means, let's do that. It's literally the lives of our service members that are on the line right now. Let's make sure that we do not privatize the VA, but that we strengthen the VA. And then this is the most important step we could take. Let's stop going to war everywhere around the world to pursue our foreign policy on the backs of 18 and 19 and 20-year-old women and men. Let's end those wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria and Somalia and Yemen and Libya, where we are engaged tonight. Bring those service members back home to their families and commit ourselves to pursue our foreign policy, the greatness of this country, resolve otherwise intractable problems through diplomacy and peace and nonviolence. I know that we can do it, we just have to set our minds to it. And by the way, that is the best way to have the backs of our service members and our returning service members when they become veterans. Next question comes from Mary Christine. Hi. Hi so your vision for the future includes a minimum wage that's a living wage. Given the vast differences in cost of living across the United States, what should the federal minimum wage be to ensure um, everyone has a living wage? Because you know we're stuck on this $15, right. but that's not necessarily going to work for people in Hawaii. It's a great point. So $15 is the answer to your question. That, that's the, the federal minimum wage that we would set, below which uh, no employer could pay a, a person. Um, as we know right now, folks are working two and three jobs in my home state of Texas where the minimum wage is $7.25 an hour and has been for years. Those are very often the same people who do not have the luxury of reading to their children before the first day of kindergarten because they're working that second or third job. And it's their children who are 10 months behind in reading comprehension on the first day of kindergarten. So the effects of our inability to make sure that everyone can participate in the economic greatness of America are born not just in the difficulty of paying the rent or putting food on the table. It is the development of their children and any chance that they're going to be able to partake in the success of this country. So $15, states and municipalities can certainly go well beyond that, but I think that is an ambitious but achievable goal that we can set. And if we complement that with guaranteed paid family leave so that you can have time to take care of yourself, uh, one of your parents or your kids without fear of being fired or losing your income, and then universal guaranteed high quality care so you can see a primary care provider, a mental health care provider, afford your prescription, and make your own decisions about your own body and have access to the care that makes that possible. When, when we do all of that together, we now have people who can work just one job and that's enough. And they have time to spend with their kids or going to uh, Pine Island Park uh, and swinging out on the rope swing into the pond um, or, or just being able to live that life um, that far too few of our Americans are able to afford right now. All right, thank, you. thank you for the question, thank you, Mary. Mary. Next yeah. up is Kim Mimsheimer. Thank you, Congressman. Thank you. Um, every 65 seconds in this country, someone is diagnosed with Alzheimer's. It's the only uh, illness in the top six causes of death with no effective treatment and no cure. Mm. Currently, the U.S. government spends about $300 billion on care for people with Alzheimer's. What would you do about the Alzheimer's crisis in this country if you were elected? I want to thank you for, for asking the question and tell you, in case there's any doubt in your mind, that when you and others like you come to Washington, D.C., 
and visit with a member of Congress. It really has an impact. It focuses our attention on something that doesn't get enough attention in this country. My grandmother, uh, Charlotte Williams, uh, died of, of Alzheimer's. And you know we watched her deterioration over time. Absolutely heartbreaking, very expensive to care for. And what we know is that if we double the amount of money that we're spending uh, today to $600 billion annually, we will be that much closer to finding a cure which morally is the right thing to do for our loved ones, for, for ourselves, and economically is a fraction of the cost that we would pay for long-term continued care for those who have no cure to look forward to right now. So an investment in, in research and the development of those cures, and then a guarantee of the long-term treatment, the ability to age in place, paying home health care attendants far more than they're paid right now, $7.25 in some states like mine, and, and making sure um, that we're there for one another in our moment of need. That's, that's going to be my priority as president. Thank you. Thank you very Thank much. You, Kim. Next question comes from Laura Landerman-Garber. Greetings. Hi, Laura. Please know that everyone here in New Hampshire is sending their love still to your uh, fellow Texans and Thank the families you. there. Thank you for saying that. You're welcome. Gratefully received. You have been and continue to be a voice for the immigrants in our country and a beautiful, strong, honest voice. And I imagine that you will continue to be that voice. What will you say, but more importantly, what will you do on their behalf to address the traumatic separations in families? I'm a psychologist mm -hmm. and I know the real trauma that is happening with those separations and the impact and mental health services are gonna be needed for years mm -hmm. to come. What will you do? You are so right, and I'm so grateful to you for asking the question and elevating these children who have been tortured by us, by our government, and, and we the people are our government. And as long as this persists, it is on the conscience of every single one of us. There is uh, an extraordinary Catholic charity in El Paso that facilitates these family reunions when a mother or father has been separated from their, their son or, or daughter. And they hosted Amy and me, my wife and I, uh, one day to witness some of these reunions. And here was a child who was the same age as our youngest son, Henry. She was eight years old, was seeing her mother for the first time in months. And instead of a, a big smile on her face, the way that's, that Henry smiles at me when, when I come home, instead of tears of joy, um, given what she's just experienced, and she's now released and able to be with her family, there was absolutely nothing on that little girl's face, a complete vacant expression. And, and I'm not um, trained in the way that you are, and so you'll have to tell me, but my assumption was that she associates her mom with the greatest pain that a human being can feel. Imagine being a stranger in a strange land, eight years old, you've just traveled 2,000 miles, some of that atop a train that they call the beast or la bestia, not inside on the seats. You finally come to this place that is your salvation, your refuge, at least that's what you've been told, and you are taken from your mother's arms by force if necessary. I'm sure that kid is thinking, what did my mom do to me? Why was I in this jail for the last six months with complete strangers? And what is our relationship going to be like now going forward? You're absolutely right, that child needs long-term care to fully recover, to heal her relationship with her mother. And if she stays in this country, to make sure that she's well enough to contribute, not just to her own greatness, but to our shared success and greatness. So as president, I will make sure that we invest the resources, not just to reunite those families who've been separated. And let's remember, there are many families tonight who, do, who know not when or if they will see each other again. 
but once reunited to make sure that they are made whole again, given the fact that we visited this injustice on them in the first place. So thank you for asking the question. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Laura. Next question comes from Dan Bergeron. Hi, Dan. Hi. When I worked for publicly traded companies, we all knew that net income for shareholders was priority. And now that I'm on the school board here in Manchester, we know that students take priority. Right. So you'll, uh, you'll understand when I was a little shocked to find out that K-12 and higher ed stocks are doing very well right now. For example, K-12.com generates 88% of their revenue for managing public school districts, 75 public schools in 30 states. Hmm. So um, I'm a little baffled as to who the priority is, but I think I know it would still be the shareholder. So um, in your administration, uh, what kind of policies do you think you would put together to avoid the sort of DeVos administration policies that are currently in place? Yeah. First of all, thanks for being here. Thank you for your public service. And, and thank you for bringing this to my attention. It's why we hold town halls, not just to share with you the courage of my convictions, but, but to listen to yours and, and to learn from you. So I will work with a secretary of education who will have public school classroom experience, who will be an excellent replacement for Betsy DeVos, who will help us um, develop uh, a pre-K through 12, because pre-K is gonna be universal throughout this country. Starting our education not at four or five years old, but three or four years old, especially for that child who may be 10 months back in reading comprehension on the first day of kindergarten. Let's make sure that we move the starting line back a full year for her so that she has a chance to start even and to stay caught up with her, with her peers. Um, and we're gonna make sure that we put children and families and communities over corporations and profits. Amy and I send our three kids to world-class public schools in El Paso. They're getting a great dual language education, making the most of our binational community, learning math today in English, learning math on Monday in Spanish. Um, not just listening and reading and writing and speaking in those languages, but just living and existing. And that's an innovation that came from public schools and public school teachers and, and listening to them. So I will continue to listen to them in, in my administration and make sure that we fund this as a priority. We call for a half trillion dollar permanent public education fund to make sure that we meet the gaps in public education, not just for lower income districts, but for minority majority districts that are underfunded to the tune of $23 billion a year, making sure that we, we close those gaps and erase a functional segregation that in some communities is worse today in 2019 than it was on the eve of Brown versus Board in 1954. So both through policy and resources, we will make sure that we elevate public school education and elevate the public school educator. And we could start in no better place than by making sure that she doesn't have to work a second or third job because we paid her a living wage. And Thanks also, for asking. Thank you for you and Amy uh, taking priority and not only understanding your community, but the demographics of all communities when it comes to education. So thank Very you. grateful. Thank you for Thanks, saying Dan. Next question comes from Colin McNaught. Hi, Colin. Hi, uh, Congressman O'Rourke. You are the highest polling Democratic candidate in the field right now to have endorsed reparations for descendants of former slaves. Uh, my question is both how would this be processed and how do you respond to others within your own party who say that this would be uh, ineffective in trying to advance racial justice? Thanks for the question. There's this really fascinating um, series of articles you may have read, given the fact that you asked this question, on the New York Times website. Um, that makes a, a really compelling case that we should mark 
the foundation of this country not on July 4th, 1776, but instead on August 20th of 1619. The first time uh, a kidnapped man from West Africa was brought here in bondage and forced to work as a slave to begin building the greatness and the wealth and the success of this country, a, a wealth and success that his descendants would not be able to fully participate in, not just during slavery, not just during Jim Crow and segregation, but today in 2019, where there is 10 times the wealth in white America than there is in black America. In that kindergarten classroom that I keep talking about in Texas, if you're five years old and you're in that classroom and you're a child of color, you are five times as likely to be disciplined or suspended or expelled. The schoolhouse to jailhouse pipeline begins not in high school, but in kindergarten, where that kid is absolutely defenseless. And that has produced the largest prison population on the face of the planet. 2.3 million people behind bars right now as we enjoy one another's company and our freedom, disproportionately comprised of people of color. We see it in healthcare. We have a maternal mortality crisis in America. It is three times as deadly for women of color. And it extends to our democracy. Texas ranked 50th in voter turnout, not because we love our democracy less than you do here in New Hampshire, but we were drawn that way. People of color drawn out of a congressional district to diminish the power of the vote or the likelihood that we would hear their voice. The Voting Rights Act denuded and stripped down so it no longer affords protections to those who need it. I say all this as preamble to make the case that reparations is absolutely fundamental to correct an injustice, to ensure that we do not visit it on the generations that follow, and to begin repairing the damage done to this country. Not just the descendants of slaves, but, but to this entire country, our idea of who we are. Uh, the idea that, that Langston Hughes described as the land that never has been yet and yet must be. If we're going to get there, that more perfect union, if we're going to fulfill the promise from July 4, 1776, that we are all created equal, then we need to sign Sheila Jackson Lee's reparations bill into law. It forces a national conversation that we have never had to ensure that everyone's story is told. And then at the end of the day, I believe we will all be compelled, regardless of our race or ethnicity or country of national origin, to do the right thing. That is the history of the United States at its best. I think of the civil rights movement and those legislators and that fellow Texan of mine who signed into law the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, they were good people, but they did it because they were forced by all of the people of this country to do the right thing. And we need just such a movement at this point. And I think the, the reparations commission envisioned is the best vehicle for that movement to express itself. Thank you, Congressman. Thank you very much. Thank you, Colin. Next question comes from Joan Wentworth. Hi, Joan. Hi, good evening. Good evening. What are your thoughts on the types of circumstances where the president should or should not issue an executive order or invoke emergency powers? And as president, would you support setting limits on either? Oh, this is such a good question, and it's come up in, in many forms over the course of, of this evening. People asking me which executive actions would we commence with on day one uh, of our administration, uh, bringing up uh, different policy challenges and, and asking if we would go past or beyond Congress by executive order. My preference will always be uh, to work with our co-equal branch of government, to bring Democrats and Republicans and independents to the table, to make sure that the popular will of this country is expressed in the legislation that we pass. But given some of the challenges that we face, for example, scientists tell us that the floods 
uh, the storms that we're seeing off the coast of, of the Carolinas, uh, the fires in California that followed historic droughts in that state, uh, the civil war in Syria, which was precipitated by historic droughts caused not by God nor by Mother Nature, but by all of us, our excesses, our emissions, our inaction in the face of the facts. That's only going to get worse. It's only going to take more lives. It's only going to destroy more communities. And those same scientists say, we have but 10 years left within which to act, after which we are done for. And Ulysses and Molly and Henry, my kids, will be looking back on me and all of us in this moment and wondering, why did you not act while you still had time? So with that in mind, yes, I would take executive action if we were unable to work with Congress. The clock is ticking, and we don't have much room or much time, and we must act. Uh, I would declare that a national emergency so that we can marshal the necessary resources to meet that threat and also to establish our moral standing on the global stage to help convene other countries to do their part as well. This is truly a global challenge. We would do something very similar when it comes to gun violence. I mean, kids today are scared to go to school. I met a student from Derry High School. She said she knows exactly which bookshelf she is going to pull down when, not if, that shooter walks into her classroom. She's trained on it on a weekly basis. Uh, how is that fundamentally changing who we are as a country or what our kids think about us? They're about to give up on us if they have not already. We can't allow that to happen. We cannot lose more lives. That is a national crisis and an emergency. We would declare it as such and again ensure that we had the resources and the political will to meet it and to stop it. So yes, I believe in strong executive action. My preference will always be to work with Congress, but we do not have much time to act on these issues, and so we will act in my administration. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Joan. Another social media question coming in, Congressman. This one from James Clemenson, a bit of an oppositional question. Why do you think the strategy of harassing conservative voters is a winning strategy for the Democratic Party? How will you treat voters of the opposite party? Yeah, no, we, we should, to be clear, we should never harass one another. Uh, you know, see ourselves not as Republicans or Democrats, but as Americans, as human beings first, and, and treat one another accordingly. Um, I believe this had a lot to do with our success in Texas in winning independence for the first time since 1994, winning those Republican voters who just needed to be brought into the conversation, needed to not be written off. Uh, going to King County, that's the county that voted for Donald Trump 96% in the last election. And you know what? Their concerns were much like yours or mine. They want to make sure that water is healthy enough for their kids to drink. And in King County, it is not. And I know that that's a challenge here in New Hampshire with PFAS and making sure that we fund the, the response to that um, in the face of the inaction that we've seen so far. So that's not a Republican or a Democrat issue. That's a, an American issue. That's a, an issue confronted by human beings. Um, and we continue to do that. We're going to some of the most conservative counties in America right now. We just did that in the southwestern part of Virginia. We've been to all the counties in New Hampshire. We listen to everyone without asking first what party they belong to, to whom they pray, who they love, how many generations their family's been here. No me importa, I don't care. Uh, all that matters is that we're together and we have this chance to work together. And that's the way that I campaign. That is the way that I will govern. That's the way that we'll be able to serve this country and one another in my administration. Next question comes from Elizabeth Radisich. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, how are you tonight? I'm good, thanks. Good, thank you. You brought some wonderful energy tonight, and I, I really appreciate it. Um, Adam touched on the, the first part of my question, which is um, I, there's a lot of people calling for you to run for Senate in Texas. Um, I hear it 
among uh, my fellow New Hampshire voters. I hear it from my friends in Texas. So um, you've explained why you've chosen not to. Um, but after your experience with Senator Cruz, is there a concern that maybe Texas can't be led to become a, a purple state? And also, uh, I believe Texas has a cutoff of December. Is that correct for their senatorial? That's correct. Okay. To, to declare candidacy for a given office. Exactly. And um, if you don't make a debate stage, say in November, would you commit to running for Senate in Texas to lead Texas into a new purple era? Thank you for the question. Um, the, the direct short answer is no, I, I will not be running for Senate. There are already seven extraordinary candidates who have already filed. Uh, Christina Sinsun Ramirez, MJ Hager, who is a combat veteran, uh, Amanda Edwards, just to name three extraordinary women from our state, any one of whom will be able to defeat John Cornyn if they are the nominee, uh, every one of whom would make a, a, an outstanding senator to make us all proud in Texas and here in New Hampshire. No, I, I want to be president. Uh, I want to serve this country. I want to bring together a, a very divided, very polarized America. I want to heal instead of inflame. I want to be confident and courageous about the future instead of walling it off or putting it inside of a cage or seeking to make you angry or afraid based on our differences. I want to show that those differences are not dangerous, they're not disqualifying, they're the foundation of our strength, of our success, as well as our security and our safety. And I want to be able to do it in a way, as we showed in Texas, that you can bring people together despite those differences, including differences of geography and differences of party. I believe it is that kind of movement that we'll need to defeat Donald Trump in 2020. It is that kind of movement that we'll need to bring this country together again in 2021. If I am not the nominee, I will do everything in my power to support whoever she or he is to make sure that they not only defeat Trump in November of next year, but that they are successful as president. I, I believe so much in this country. I know that not just the generation present here, but every generation following ours, maybe even more so, are counting on us to do the right thing while we still have time. That is my urgent priority, and I will do everything I can to deliver on that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Elizabeth. A couple minutes left here. Can you take us through your health care plan, Congressman? Absolutely. So uh, we're calling for guaranteed, high-quality, universal care. Uh, guaranteed is, is the operative word in that because I've learned by listening to so many who have insurance that they very often cannot afford the care that that insurance purports to provide. The copay on the medication, um, the, the uh, deductible, uh, the, uh, the, the premiums that are unaffordable to them. Uh, by, by, by putting the word guarantee in, we make sure that everyone's able to be well enough to live to their full potential. And that means no copay for primary care, no copay for mental health care, no copay for medications, no copay for the full spectrum of women's health care in this country. The way that we get there is by enrolling everyone into Medicare who does not have insurance today. Those who are insufficiently insured, read those who are not guaranteed care even though they are insured, they can elect to move to Medicare. But those who have employer-sponsored insurance, that they like because it works for them and their families. Members of unions who fought for health care plans, sometimes in lieu of wage increases or other earned benefits, and want to keep those health care plans, will be able to do that under our plan. So we get to universal guaranteed high quality by respecting the choices that our fellow Americans have made. Um, and I think that's the best possible path we could take. All right. As we wrap up here, there's been a lot of heavy stuff. 
I've got uh, a Big Lebowski reference for you. Got you it. might get it, you might not. But uh, in the movie, the uh, cowboy character asks the dude, do you really have to cuss so much? I, I, I feel like you're giving me an invitation to start swearing in, in front of you all. And I, I will not accept that invitation right now out of, out of respect for um, those of you who've made the, the time for us tonight. You know, we, we were talking about... Um, you know, our, our politics no longer serving us and serving our fellow Americans and, and leaving us open to the kind of demagoguery that dominates our politics today, uh, most explicitly in, in Donald Trump. Um, so trying to, to shake us out of that, um, a, a complacency, an apathy, an acceptance of something that we should never, ever accept is fundamental to our success in defeating Donald Trump, but also changing our politics so it actually works. So many of these questions were predicated on the premise that even if we are elected, we will be dealing with an incalcitrant Congress. We'll need to use executive action in order to accomplish anything. I don't want to see this, this democracy die. I want to help wake us up to the challenge that we have, or we will watch each other die in our sleep, die in our sleep as a democracy, die in our sleep as a country. So I'm ringing the alarm as it was rung for me on August 3rd when 22 of my fellow El Pasoans were killed innocently shopping at a Walmart, as it was rung last week in Odessa in Midland when seven were killed in those communities, as it is rung for so many communities as we see a rise in hate crime every single one of the last three years, as that alarm rings on a daily basis for those who are working one, two, three jobs just to make ends meet. So I want to make sure that we respond with the urgency that these crises demand right now. And sometimes, in unguarded moments, that's reflected in the language that I use. Um, so I'm just trying to be as honest uh, and direct as I possibly can, given the challenges that we face. And sometimes when I go into that most honest, unguarded part of, of my mind, a swear word will, will pop out. Fair yeah. enough. Congressman O'Rourke, thank you for joining thank us you on very Conversation with the Candidate. We yeah. appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us for WMUR's The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. If you have a moment and can write a review or subscribe to this podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can also find us on WMUR.com and our free WMUR app 24-7. See you for the next episode of this podcast next week.